and that is part of who I am and what I believe as a Christian. Now, I would say that normally for events like this and other settings that Glenn knows that I've talked about, I typically bring my husband along for moral support to sit right in the front row. But since I haven't found him yet, he wasn't able to make it this morning. Celibacy. The word itself brings images to mind, perhaps images of a prude, frigid nun, a feeble old man, a geeky, awkward guy, an ugly old maid. But celibacy is part of my testimony of faith. It is a part of who I am as a Christian and a part of how I practice my faithfulness to God. First, a story. After a lifetime of hand-copying ancient texts, an elderly monk became abbot of his monastery, realizing that for centuries and centuries his order had been making copies of copies. He decided that it was time to examine some of the monastery's original documents. Days later, the other monks found him in the cellar, weeping over a crumbling manuscript and moaning. It says celebrate, not celibate. (laughs) How awake are you this morning? All right, all right. Hey, it's going to get better as the sermon goes on. Beware. Celibacy can be defined in many ways. It can refer to an absence of sexual intercourse or activity in one's life. It can be described as a lifestyle, for example, without genital sexual expression, or a state of voluntary singleness. Just to set the record straight, today I am going to be using the term celibacy as abstaining from sexual intercourse. I believe strongly in going first to the scriptures to see what the Bible says about things. And so we're going to look at what the Bible says about celibacy. The Old Testament makes it very clear, as we heard from Melanie's reading, that sexual intercourse was intended for procreation. But then we also know that texts such as the Proverbs and Song of Songs allow us to see sex and sexuality beyond the role of procreation, to the idea that these are really good gifts from God. The Old Testament also is clear on the specific appropriate context for sexual relations, such as within the confines of marriage, as well as the certain responsibilities and obligations that accompany sexual intercourse. Most Christians would first point to two prominent men in the New Testament in reference to celibacy, Jesus and Paul. And many interpretations of 1 Corinthians 7 that Jonathan read for us explain Paul's attitudes towards celibacy as the preferred state for those who are single. If we look at the Greek text, which I won't spend a lot of time on, but I'm going to ask you to trust me on this, the word pornea, or what many have translated to be called sexual immorality, is found throughout the New Testament, and it's translated into various forms, especially, of course, in English, from which we are most familiar. And those words often come out as prostitution, fornication, adultery, unchastity, or impurity. Depends on the version of the Bible, and it depends on a lot of, a lot of different contexts. For those persons who translate 
pornea as fornication, these texts are often cited as some of the most explicit teachings concerning celibacy in the Bible. Many Christians translate fornication as the voluntary act of sexual intercourse between two persons not married to each other. However, as is always the case with biblical interpretation, not everyone is in agreement of how the texts are translated. Some biblical scholars claim that the Greek word for sexual immorality does not refer to premarital sex. And as a result of the ambiguity in the translation, some biblical scholars profess that there is no explicit prohibition regarding sexual intercourse between unmarried consenting adults in either the Old or the New Testament. So if we were to look solely at the biblical basis for the decision, it would only be fair to say that the Bible does not give us a clear-cut understanding in our current understanding of biblical Greek. And it does not give us a clear, decisive answer to that question, just like many questions that we face in our lives. But because we know that the Bible does not always have a specific answer, I believe it's fair to say that such a Christian ethic of premarital sex can be developed, but not based solely on biblical interpretation. Thus, it leads us to what I call a theology of celibacy rather than a biblical interpretation. Theology is our understanding of God. While the Bible is our main source of understanding God, the church and the church's people also contribute to that and go beyond our specific scriptural references. And we begin to look at overall themes throughout the Bible and throughout our faith journeys that incorporate the process of personal inspiration and communal discernment in our formulation of theology. In essence, to develop a theology of sexuality, specifically a theology of celibacy, we must ask this question. How does my sexual behavior contribute or detract from the work of the Christian community and towards my dedication to God? Ronald Rollheiser, in his book, The Holy Longing, and there are two books that I think are the best books that I have ever read on this subject. One is Ronald Rollheiser's book, The Holy Longing, and the other one is Lauren Winner's book, Real Sex. Um, I got Lauren's autograph when I was in Nashville a few weeks ago. If you want to touch me later, you can. Um, But her her book is just fabulous, Um, and Ronald Rollheiser's book is fabulous, too. Both of them would be appropriate for both married and single people. And I will quote from Ronald Rollheiser's book now. He defines sexuality from a Christian perspective. And he says, sexuality is a beautiful, good, extremely powerful, sacred energy given us by God and experienced in every cell of our being as an irrepressible urge to overcome our incompleteness, to move toward unity and consummation with that which is beyond that. It is also the pulse to celebrate, to give, and to receive delight, and to find our way back to the Garden of Eden, where we can be shameless without worry and work. Rollheiser's definition mentions the desires that all of us have as humans created in God's image for completeness, a desire for unity, perhaps a desire for unity with the one who has created us. And this is a human need, and it's a need that can be met in many ways. 
And yes, sexual intercourse is indeed one of those ways that helps us find completeness, but one can also have intercourse and feel even more incomplete if the sex is casual or trivialized, unimportant, not respected, or not sacred. Intercourse is not like anything else, Rollheiser says. Quote, it's fire, it's so powerful, so precious, so close to the heart and soul of a person and so godly that it either gives life or takes it away. And so as a result, it is my choice how I wish to participate in this important act, in this act that God has given me and has given all of us. I do believe that God intends for us to thoroughly enjoy sex, sex that is in a monogamous, covenantal, committed marriage. Because the act of sex is the most intimate, the most vulnerable, and the most private act I will ever have with another human being, it calls for total giving, total trust, and total commitment. Without such attributes, the act of intercourse will not be, it cannot be, as full and life-giving as God has intended it to be. And so such an act law calls for lifelong fidelity within the relationship. And so the sermon is not just for people who are not married, but it is also very much for those who are. The deep need to share this act with only our spouses, no one else, including the Internet, is critically important. And as a result, I choose to share this intimate soul-sharing soul act only with my husband. Thus, an important decision in my life has been the decision to refrain from sexual intercourse outside of the context of marriage. While my decision to remain celibate has not always been easy, and there have been times that people have thought I was crazy, odd, and to quote, a weirdo, or even a prude, not a day has gone by that I regret my choice to not participate in sex outside the covenant of marriage. I value the intimacy that, incurs, that occurs between a man and a woman during the act of intercourse too much to participate in that activity with anyone other than a man to which I have made lifelong vows. And yes, that means if I never get married, I plan on remaining a virgin until I die. I don't think I will have experienced life any less than others. My experiences will be different, but I will also never be faced with issues of sexually transmitted diseases, unwanted pregnancy, or feelings of abandonment or the emotional pain caused by sex outside of marriage. I'd rather live a life full of integrity and emotional honesty than succumb to the idea that everyone is having sex. Not everyone who is single is having sex, although there are a lot of people who are. Nor is it normal to engage in an affair for a married person because that's how humans are created, even though a lot of people are having extramarital affairs. Is celibacy natural? Is a monogamy natural? Is it normal? 
In other words, are we not fully human if we do not have sexual intercourse even at least one time in our lives? Because we are sexual beings, some people believe that the only way we can fully express our sexuality is through sexual intercourse. So to practice celibacy can appear therefore unnatural or, or abnormal, especially in our sex-crazed culture. Society teaches us that romantic relationships with others will always lead to sex. If someone willingly chooses not to have sex, society wonders if this person can actually develop normal, healthy relationships, or perhaps he or she is too obsessed with him or herself, or maybe they're just not attractive enough for anyone to actually desire him or her, or, okay, they're just plain odd. Furthermore, within Christian context, context, persons who do not marry and procreate and implicitly practice celibacy are considered abnormal. In our I want it and I want it now culture, the practice of celibacy allows us to practice the spiritual discipline of waiting and patience. Perhaps this is one of the best spiritual disciplines that all of us can improve upon single or married. Two summers ago, my four-year-old niece was visiting me for the weekend, and we were in the backyard, and we were planting some ferns and other, and other flowers. And she was digging in the dirt, getting her hands really dirty, loving everything, showing me worms, and just celebrating nature. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, she stood up and stomped her foot on the ground, and she said, Aunt Sue, you have to be married. Why don't you have a husband? Not sure where this came from. I slowly sat up, and I thought, this is a teaching moment, Sue. This is a teaching moment. And I said, well, Ava, not everybody is married. Not everybody has to have a husband or a wife. And I don't have one. And so then I could tell that really wasn't pleasing to her mind. And then I said, Ava, you wouldn't want me to have a husband who was mean or cranky or nasty or grumpy and didn't treat you or me very well, would you? You'd rather have a husband for me and an uncle for you who's going to be fun and lively and energetic and funny and laugh a lot and, have, and treat you really well and treat me really well, wouldn't you? And she said, yeah. And I said, so would I. And I just haven't found anybody that's like that yet for me or for you as an uncle. And I could tell that that was somewhat helpful for her, but I could still tell the, the gears were turning in her head. And so I said to her, you don't happen to know anybody like that, do you? <laughs> Determined to play matchmaker, <laughs> Ava stood there thinking of all the hundred people she's met in her lifetime. <laughs> I do, I do know somebody. And I said, who? Thinking, oh my goodness, this might be perfect. And she goes, my daddy. <laughs> and I said, Ava, that would be wonderful, but I don't think your mother would like that very much. He's married. And she goes, oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> I do love the fact 
that she thinks so highly of my brother-in-law that she would be willing to match him with me. I've told my sister she has to look out now. (laughs) Richard Seip wrote, I am convinced that we will never fully understand celibacy until we free it from analogies to marriage. Celibacy is a reality in itself, not merely the absence or negative of something else. And sometimes we as church members forget that the ideas that we are portraying when we propose Christian morals and expectations on each other, so much so that four-year-old Ava was so confused as to what was wrong with her aunt. Take, for example, the True Love Waits campaign or the Purity Balls. The True Love, Wait campaign, campaign, True Love Waits campaign is a campaign that encourages adolescents to sign a pledge card that says that they will not participate in intercourse until they are married. Or purity balls are balls in which girls and their fathers go to a sort of dance type thing where they pledge their virginity until marriage and entrust their sexuality decision to their father's approval. While I openly and clearly support the call to abstinence that both of these programs promote, programs such as these propose that all young people will indeed have a wedding night. Campaigns like True Love, True Love Waits are purposeful and encouraging. However, we must also realize that not everybody is going to get married. And so by changing our language or our motivation, all persons will be accepted and included, even if they don't meet societal concepts of normalcy. I never signed a pledge card at any point in my life, but I'm not ashamed to admit that I am a 39-year-old virgin. It may feel odd to some of you, maybe especially for those of you who are visitors, to have my sexuality discussed so freely over the pulpit this morning. But when we think about it, we hear and see so much about sexuality and the choices of mainstream America on TV, in the news, in our magazines, on the internet, in novels, and even in our schools, that I think the church pulpit is the perfect place to discuss good choices regarding sexuality. Ronald Rollheiser wrote, Popular Culture Today teaches us that one cannot be whole without being healthily sexual. And that's correct. However, for the most part, society thinks of sexuality only as having sex. And that's a tragic reduction. Sexuality is a wide energy, and we are healthily sexual when we have love, community, communion, family, friendship, affection, creativity, joy, delight, humor, and self-transcendence in our lives. Having these, as we know, depends on many things, and not just on whether or not we sleep alone. Jesus demonstrated a successful life for single adult living. He needed quiet time as well as time with a diverse group of friends, and I can also assume that Jesus had needs for intimacy, sexual expression, and intense companionship. But even as a sexual being, Jesus was able to find sexual expression without having sexual intercourse. He was able to express, as Kathleen Norris writes, celibate passion. James Nelson wrote, Although Jesus, we assume, 
refrained from sexual intercourse, he nevertheless was deeply in touch with his own embodiedness, his feelings, and his sensuous capacities. All this is very evident in his relationship with others, both women and men, and it is evident in the passion that pervaded his life. Celibacy is a choice and a gift. Whitehead wrote, the choice of celibacy must be a decision not against, but for something. The person must not choose just to avoid, but to engage. As with all choices, there must be some motivating factor. And while I believe that the decision to be celibate can be motivated by the idea that I believe that sex outside of marriage is wrong, and for some, it may be just because we say so, there are many more positive reasons, advantages to celibacy, so that we not focus on what we are leaving behind, but rather on what we are gaining. When one chooses celibacy, she or he is setting boundaries on his or her sexual activities. It is because of those boundaries that sexual sabotage can be avoided, whether by oneself or by other people who may attempt to use and or abuse intercourse as revenge, manipulation, rebellion, or punishment. And as a result, the choice of celibacy is full of freedom. Celibacy is like any other spiritual discipline. One can't teach another how it works. We have to commit ourselves to it, and then we begin to discover its gifts. When we begin to see both sexual intercourse and celibacy as a gift and not a curse, an expectation or a punishment or a mandate, we no longer feel ashamed or embarrassed with our state or somebody else's state of being. Perhaps a better theology might not necessarily even single out sexual intercourse or celibacy as a gift, but rather as an integral part of our sexuality. Our theology of sexuality should view all of our sexuality as a gift from God, not just the act of intercourse, though that is part of the gift. When the emphasis is taken away from the act of intercourse and focused on the overall view of human sexuality, the gift is broad and inclusive of every human being. Over the past decade, I've come to realize in thinking about this topic that when celibacy is a choice rather than a mandate, it is not so much out of rebellion that I want to have sex as much anymore. I believe more than before that celibacy is the right choice outside of marriage, not because God explicitly says anywhere in the Bible, you shall not have premarital sex, Sue Conrad, but because God wants us to live within community, true to ourselves, faithful to the vows of marriage and to God and Christians. While those who are married make a commitment before God and the community to sexual intimacy only with each other, single persons within the church could also make a similar commitment, one of celibacy in their single life, to God and to the community. And just as a marriage vow is celebrated and affirmed, so should and could such a vow of celibacy. A few months ago, a single friend of mine wrote me. In her letter, she talked about her church service the past Sunday. She said there were at least six announcements regarding engagements, upcoming weddings, and anniversary celebrations. 
She said, they're all good, and, and all should be applauded, and people did applaud. She continued writing, I kept wondering, though, when I'll be applauded if I never get married. When do we affirm single people for who they are, for the big milestones in their lives? I wrote back to her, and I told her that she might want to try standing up in front of the church the next Sunday during sharing time and saying that she just wanted to announce that she was committing herself to a life of celibacy outside of marriage and see if the congregation would applaud her for that. I believe, too, that marital partners can practice sexual fidelity better in their marriage if both have practiced celibacy when they were single. Yet I know that many persons do not practice celibacy outside of marriage. I strongly encourage this practice, but when one has not but wishes to begin this practice, or when one is still deciding, let us extend grace and guidance rather than irreversible judgment. Let's pledge to agree that the virtue of charity is utterly important in our relationships with each other. The celibate lifestyle, like all life choices, has joys and challenges. There is joy in the freedom of my decision. And yet it still has its challenges. For, as human as I am, I still have sexual desires. However, I am inspired and fulfilled to know that the desire to practice celibacy as part of my sexuality, given to me as a gift from God, is a way for me to express my commitment and my fidelity to God as my creator. Amen.